0: Well, happy Mother's Day to all you moms. Great to honor you this morning. We are continuing this morning in our study of the book of Mark. We are in chapter 3, verses 7 to 19. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 19 of the book of Mark. So if you would open to that passage in your Bible, whether it's paper or electronic, if you would open to that section of scripture, uh, we will uh, study that this morning. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 7 through verse 19. All right, we read, "...Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that He was doing, many people came to Him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, He told His disciples to have a small boat ready for Him." To keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him, whenever the evil spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried, "You are the Son of God!" But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and the fact that we can trust it 100%, that it is totally reliable, and that we can, through it, we can learn of you, learn of your grace, learn of your love, learn of your mercy, learn of your judgment. We thank you. We thank you for giving us your word and for the fact that it can give us the content of our teaching. It corrects us and challenges us and puts us on the right path when we were going, when we are going in the wrong way and it trains us to serve you righteously. Lord, as always, we thank you for your son's willingness to go to the cross of Calvary And take our sins upon His innocent body. That by believing in Him, we can have the hope of eternal life. Lord, we thank You. We ask You to guide us in our study this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. One writer summarizes our passage this way. Unless Jesus wished to be involved in a head-on collision with the authorities, He had to leave the synagogues, not out of fear but his hour had not yet come. That's an important concept to get as we go through, especially these chapters of Mark, that Jesus was waiting for the time the Father had assigned to him. And so uh, he, when you see him telling the demons in this passage, for instance, not to tell who he was, his time hadn't yet come. His time hadn't yet come. So it's not out of fear, it's not out of fear but his hour had not yet come. So he left the synagogues and went out to the lakeside and the open sky. Even there the clouds flocked to him. So, so large were they that it became dangerous and a boat had to be kept at the ready just off shore. The crowds didn't wait for him to touch them. They rushed to touch him. Well, what we have this morning is we have two parts of our passage. Verses 7 to 12 is, a, is kind of a summary, a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And what you see is people in need, people in need and Jesus Christ meeting their needs, teaching them to draw them to himself. Uh, many of them came for the wrong reasons. Many of them came to use Jesus, not to worship him, to use him, not to believe in him. And so the first part, verses 7 to 12, is a snapshot of Jesus' ministry. Uh, The second part, verses 13 to 19, where Jesus sets aside 12 who would be his uh, representatives, who he would send out with the purpose of teaching about him, and drawing men and women and boys and girls to Jesus Christ. We see his choosing of the 12 that would do that. And one thing interesting, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes when we get to it. Well, not a few, but it'll be this morning. uh, When we get to it, that Jesus kind of gives the disciples nicknames. Uh, I'll call it nicknames, it's really surnames but he gives them kind of nicknames, kind of like the call signs you guys have and gals have in the uh, Air Force. Uh, I like, my favorite story about that is, comes from Leroy Imes and his daily discipleship book. He said, after graduation from high school in 1943, I joined the Marines. Do I hear a whoop? Okay. <laughs> he, he, he joined the Marines uh, he said, I was hoping that they could toughen me up and help me learn how to hold my own. I always had a secret desire to be a rough and tumble guy. In fact, I even had a nickname picked out for myself, Nails. I always wanted to be known as Nails Imes, as in there's a, there's a guy who's tough as nails. But my nickname in the Marines was Chick. <laughs> At any rate, we will see in the latter part of this this, uh, passage, uh, verses 13 to 19, that Jesus uh, may may have given more disciples nicknames than we are aware of. We're aware of a couple, but uh, he may have given others nicknames. By the way, I want you to think about something, uh, and we'll say more about this a little bit later, and that is what nickname would Jesus give you? If Jesus were giving you a nickname, what nickname would he give you? That's just a thought for you to, to, to maul over this coming week. Well, chapter 3, verses 7 to 19 of Mark are paralleled, and it's always important to remember the parallels because that's how we can see the full happening in a passage because when we compare the parallel passages, we get a fuller picture of what happened. The parallels to Mark three are Matthew twelve verses fifteen to twenty one, and Luke six verses twelve to nineteen. Matthew twelve verses fifteen to twenty one, and Luke six verses twelve to nineteen. Well, let's look at the first part of our passage, verses three to twelve, or seven to twelve. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now, the lake there was no doubt the Sea of Galilee is what's meant. He withdrew with his disciples to the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. Well, the crowd followed him. Now, that's the the use of follow there is a non-technical sense. It doesn't mean they had put their faith in him. It doesn't mean that they were following him as their leader, uh, as their rabbi, as their teacher. All it simply means is that they heard about what he was doing. They saw what he was doing they heard about his teaching so they just went along with him as he went to the lake they went along with him and uh, uh, we uh, get a little bit of background when we look at the parallel passage in Mark remember the last thing we studied last week in verse 6 is where the Herodians and the Pharisees joined together and discussed how they might kill Jesus. Well, what Matthew brings to the table here, what Matthew twelve fifteen tells us, is that Jesus was aware of this. Jesus was aware of this, and it, it, his, it was his awareness of this that caused him to leave and caused him to leave the synagogues and go rather to the open air, to go to the lake, uh, uh, to do, continue his teaching, continue his healing ministry, to continue his. Uh, casting out demons ministry Uh, Jesus knew what they were planning to do and so he leaves the area why? remember what I said a moment ago it wasn't yet his time it wasn't yet his time he had an appointed time to go to Jerusalem an appointed time to go to Calvary's cross an appointed time to take in his body your sin and my sin on Calvary's cross So it wasn't yet time. And so he knows what they're planning and he leaves the synagogues. He leaves that area, goes to the open air, goes to the lake. And we're going to see in a little bit, the parallel passage in Luke 6 tells us that uh, after uh, uh, a lot of ministry, after a lot of healing, after a lot of casting out demons, that Jesus goes to a mountain and prays all night. We see Jesus so many times in prayer before a major decision. And there was a major decision to be made, and that decision was who would be the twelve that from this point forward he would pour his life into. Remember, he is teaching the multitudes. He is healing the multitudes. He is casting out demons from the multitudes. But he's moving to the place very quickly where he will spend his time with the twelve where he will train them, where he will be with them, where he will uh, direct them, where he will teach them, where he will guide them. And so he goes up into a mountain to pray and then that brings us back to Mark 3.13 where he chooses the 12 apostles. He chooses the 12 apostles. Well, they had followed him in a non-technical sense, they had followed him because they heard all that he was doing. They heard about his works of healing. They heard about his casting out demons. Uh, People came from a hundred miles away in Judea and Jerusalem and Edomene. That was on the south, the south of where Jesus was in Galilee, around the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, People came from the east in the Transjordan area. People came from Tyre and Sidon, which were coastal cities uh, in in Phoenicia in the north. And what we believe here is that Jesus taught and healed and cast demons out of both Jews and non-Jews at this point. The three parts of his ministry was his teaching ministry, his healing ministry, and his delivering the demon possessed. Well, Jesus' healing ministry brought him such notoriety that the people eagerly approached him. That is, that the reason he asked for a boat was because they were pressing in upon him. Pressing, pressing, pressing. Kind of like the woman with the issue of blood. They were trying to touch, just even touch his robe if they could get that close. And so they were pressing and pressing and pressing. And so he has the disciples bring a boat. Now the word that we see in verses 9 and 10 where we read this, because of the crowd he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, They fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. When it talks about Jesus' healing ministry, the word diseases there is mestigas. Mestigas in Greek. And it means scourging or suffering. Scourging or suffering. It is used uh, of the, the woman with the issue of blood. And one writer suggests that the word suggests distressing bodily diseases inflicted as a divine chastisement. Distressing bodily diseases inflicted as a divine chastisement. But the writer points out that this can be a wholesome thing when the affliction drives them to Christ. Uh, Have you ever noticed that sometimes when when you have been praying for some time, or maybe you've just begun praying, for your non-Christian friends, for your non-Christian family members, and you're praying that they might see the glory of Jesus Christ, that they might see that he died for them on Calvary's cross, that they might see that he loved them so. And you're praying for them and you're praying for them, and then all of a sudden some horrible thing comes into their lives. Maybe it's a disease. Maybe something happens to them or their children. And you say, why? Why? Why, God, did you let that happen? I've been trying to to lead them to you. I've been trying to share my faith with them. I've been trying to see them come to Jesus Christ as their Savior, and yet you seem to have put a roadblock in the way. Well, you see, often what God is doing is He's showing them their inability without Him. He's often showing them that they need Him. And so, as the writer said, these diseases, these masticus, these scourges, this suffering that God brought upon them was a wholesome thing when the affliction would drive them to Christ. When the affliction would drive them to Christ. It can be a wholesome thing. While the people were pressing in upon Jesus and because the crowd was so loud was so uh, large a boat was provided to to uh, provide escape to Jesus unless the crowd uh, in in the case that the crowd got unruly there was another part to this and that was this the danger that the crowds that Jesus drew would cause him to be open to the charge of leading an insurrection of leading an insurrection. Please understand that for the most part, these were not spiritually motivated crowds. They were motivated because Jesus healed. They were motivated to, in a sense, use Jesus. And they weren't there. They weren't necessarily a spiritually motivated crowd. They approached the Lord eagerly, practically falling on him. And the, the tense here in verse 10, where we read, for he had treated many so that those with diseases were pushing forward is a present tense. It means they continued to press. They continued to press in and press in and press in. They were desperate people. They were needy people. And they knew that Jesus could meet their need even if they didn't understand the spiritual implications of who Jesus was. The healing would be a way in, so to speak, a way in for them to to have their eyes open and see who he really was. So the present tense shows us that this was a chaotic situation. This was a chaotic situation. All of these crowds coming, all of these these crowds pressing in upon Jesus and he's at the, the shore of the lake and so you can imagine This kind of a situation it was. Well, unfortunately, they had little interest in Jesus except as a miracle worker. They had little interest in Jesus except as a miracle worker. That was the downside, the downside rather, to his popularity. The crowd is portrayed as more interested in satisfying their curiosity and physical needs than in becoming a true follower, one writer said. And I think that's a great statement. The crowd is portrayed as more interested in satisfying their curiosity and their physical needs than in becoming true followers of Jesus Christ. So they continue to press and continue to press and continue to press and so Jesus has his disciples prepare a boat by the way he will he taught, as you know, from the scripture numerous times from a boat right off of the shore. In fact, coming up after this incident, and after he chose his twelve disciples, Jesus would go out in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and teach uh, teach them the the uh, ethic of the kingdom, the ethic of the kingdom in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, he would do that from a boat. Well, verses 11 and 12 tells us that the other thing that happened here is that he was casting out demons whenever the evil spirits saw him. And we've talked about evil spirits and demons who are actually fallen angels who joined Satan in his rebellion against God. They are personal beings. They are personal beings. And uh, they uh, do the bidding of Satan. They do the bidding of Satan. And part of the bidding of Satan is to destroy people's bodies. To destroy people's bodies. They, uh, their desire is to make life difficult for people and especially to keep them away from Jesus Christ. So we're told in verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "You are the Son of God!" But he gave them strict orders not to tell who they, who he was. The demons, uh, the demoniacs, were in the crowd, and those the demoniacs were those whose speech and behavior were dominated by evil spirits. Those whose speech and behavior was dominated by evil spirits. They rec- they recognized Jesus' true sat- status as Son of God. They were threatened by His presence and they cried out, and the phrase cried out in Greek is in the imperfect tense, which is an action in past time which goes on and on and on. An action that happened in past time that goes on and on. So they were continually, was the idea, crying out. They were continually crying out. Now, why were they identifying him as the Son of God? You might wonder, why would they do that? Isn't that kind of uh, pointing people to him? But the reason for them crying out was it was an attempt to control Jesus. It was an attempt to control Jesus. What I mean by that, it was the concept in that day that knowledge of a person's precise name and knowledge of the quality of that person would allow you to have to gain mastery over them. That was a concept that was common in that day that... uh, the knowledge of the precise name of a person, the knowledge of the quality of that person would confer mastery over that person. And so it wasn't that they were trying to advertise Jesus by identifying him as the Son of God. It is that they were trying to gather some kind of mastery over Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus... Gave them strict orders, verse 12 tells us, not to tell who he was. Now, God's plan for Jesus as far as identifying himself and as far as declaring his Messiahship, declaring who he was, God's plan was progressive disclosure of his identity and mission. Progressive disclosure of his identity and mission. In other words, little by little by little, It would become evident who he was. It would become evident why he had come. And so God's plan for Jesus was progressive disclosure of his identity, progressive disclosure of his mission. So Jesus silenced the demons. Why? For two reasons. Number one, it was the time for clear revelation of who he was had not yet come. The time for clear revelation of who he was had not yet come. And secondly, the second reason for his silencing the demons is because the demons were hardly an appropriate herald for him. The demons were hardly hardly an appropriate herald for him. So, we see Jesus' ministry here. We see that there was a great need upon the peop- uh, among the people. Uh, we see here that Jesus could meet that need. And so he did meet that need. Uh, one writer said, Where human need is truly met, there is no lack of seeking souls. Where human need is truly met, there is no lack of seeking souls. Well, people are still in need wasn't just the first century that they were in need and it isn't just healing that they have need of the The greater miracle that Jesus did was not healing miracles the greatest miracle that Jesus did was to save people save people who were lost and dying and on their way to a, a Christless eternity and he saved them that's the greatest miracle he did but there's still a need and we I think, don't understand that we have the answer to their need. We have the answer to their need, but I'm afraid that so many times uh, we are reluctant. We are reluctant. Uh, Folks, our culture has never needed us more. Our nation has never needed us more. They have never that in my lifetime that I can remember needed us more than they do right now. Now, this was all put in perspective way back in 1985, you know, in the Dark Ages, uh, by a man who wrote a book entitled Unleashing the Church, and it was a seminal book for its day. And I think it still has a lot to say to us today. And he dealt with these ideas that there is a need yet out there today. We have what people, unbelievers need, what the people of our culture need, the people around us need, and, but we are reluctant to share with them and answer that need. Let me share with you what he said. People and relationship, people are still in need today. People and relationships are being destroyed at an alarming rate, lying, stealing. Now think about this. He wrote this in 1985. Think about how much worse it is today. Think about how much greater these problems are in our lives and our society today. People and relationships are being destroyed at an alarming rate, lying, stealing, getting high, drugs and alcohol, premarital sex extra matter of sex. And uh, then he per- parenthetically says, we don't break God's laws, they break us. And that, that's a great statement that we don't have time to unpack this morning. But he goes on to say, all, destru- all destructive to people, personality, relationships, is there anyone I can trust? Is there anyone who cares? Uh, we have a society that's just crying out. That's crying out. We have broken marriages, broken homes. We have husbands and wives saying, is there anybody I can trust again? We have children saying, is there anybody I can trust? I trusted my mom and dad, but they couldn't stay together. Is there anybody I can trust? We have a society asking, is there anyone I can trust? Is there anyone who cares? I don't think anything's changed since 1985. If anything, it's gotten worse. If anything, it's gotten worse. Well, he goes on to say, we have what they need. And, and I love this, and I hope you listen to this, and I hope you take this to heart. Our churches possess the nation's greatest, most precious resource. It's not oil or coal. It's people who still live by a value system based on scriptural absolutes. Uh, how are... Culture is crying out for absolutes. And all they're getting is superficial answers and political answers rather than answers from the heart of God's people. Every Bible-believing church, he says, has the rapidly diminishing commodity of people who love, who can be trusted, and who have a common commitment to God's revealed absolute absolutes. There are so many people that you and I know and they don't know who to trust. They don't know who to believe. And we have an opportunity because of our commitment to the word of God, because of our commitment to God, we have an opportunity to enrich their lives because as The writer says, we have what they need. We in the evangelical church, he goes on to say, have a commodity necessary to an unstable society. We have people who understand absolutes and live by unchanging values. Do you think that our culture isn't crying out for unchanging values? Now, I know it doesn't seem like it, I know you say, well, I don't see that. But maybe the very reason that our culture and the very reason people around us act as they do is because they are really desperately crying out for somebody who believes in absolutes. Somebody who believes that there's absolute truth. He goes on to say, even our struggles are miles ahead of the average unchurched person our culture needs us we have people who have god's love in their hearts for everyone and who also have an unchanging system of values this is a rare commodity in post-christian america and i don't know what that was 1985 we were calling it post-christian america I guess we'd have to call it post, 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 post-Christian now. Anyhow, the writer goes on to say, "We have all we need if we have Christ, if we have Christ ones who are committed to reaching others. These people, these Christians, have values. They understand absolutes, and the love of Christ flows through them. Subtly, though, the message we we have become reluctant," he says. Because subtly the message has come through that the world out there is modern while we are old fashioned. The world is seen as moving too quickly. It's too affluent, too educated, too sophisticated to be interested in biblical Christianity. In effect, we are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What an indictment. We are ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do not believe that the world could possibly want or need what they have, and yet the truth is they desperately need what we have. And when you can get past that hard, harsh exterior, crack the nut, so to speak, you can get to that part. Otherwise, the Bible is a liar. And otherwise we are proclaiming something that we don't really believe. We have the answer. And you say, well, you know, we've had that for a long time. Why haven't things changed? Because I think we're always switching the answer. We're always giving a political answer. Instead of a spiritual answer. Trying to change people's ideas rather than see their hearts change. Rather than see their hearts change. There's an interesting parable that I came across of what salvation means. Let me quickly go through it with you. A businessman was once very concerned about his ability to sell a warehouse property he owned. Since he had last surveyed the building, vandals had damaged the doors, smashed the windows, and strewn trash throughout it. The building has, had been empty for several months and needed other repairs due to weather and general lack of maintenance. As the man showed a prospective buyer the building, he took great pains to assure him that he would replace the broken windows, bring in a crew to correct any structural damage, mend the roof, clean out the garbage, He felt as if he was apologizing at every turn for the condition of the building, but wanted to present the best possible face on the potential sale. To his surprise, the buyer finally said to him, Listen, forget about the repairs. I'm going to build something completely different on this land. I don't want the building. I want the site. What a parable of salvation that is. God doesn't want the building. He wants the site. God is not into renovation. He is into regeneration. He is not into renovation. You know, we try to renovate ourselves. We say, I'll make myself good enough for God. I'll make myself good enough for this or that. And we can't do it. We can't do it. God's interested in regeneration. The writer of this parable says, so often we attempt to present to our Creator what we think is good, justifying our actions, promising to do better, try, trying to put the best spin on the state of our souls. In the end, what he wants is us. If you're an unbeliever this morning, you have not yet trusted Christ as Savior, And the end, what he wants is you. Not how you can clean yourself up, not how you can make yourself look pretty or handsome before him, but he wants you. Because he has a better program. He has not not a fix-up program. An entire regeneration making you a new person. And by the way, it's true too that if we are believers in Jesus Christ already, we often withhold so much of ourselves from God. He wants us he wants us if we really believe this if we really sought this solution I wonder what could happen I wonder what could happen well enough on that in fact too much on that because I've got a few minutes to do a lot of things Jesus went up on a mountain this is verse 13 and called to him those he wanted and they came to him now i really love that don't overlook that we always we we are so forgive me arrogant we are so arrogant that we think we chose god when it's god's sovereignty that chose us and continues to choose us chose us for salvation Continues to choose us to be used of him. uh, That's what this is saying here. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to them those he wanted. He didn't take a survey and said, who of you would like to come along with me? Let's go. We'll have a high old time. Uh Uh-uh. He looked out at that crowd. And by the way, apparently a a larger group followed him up the mountain uh, other than the 12. And then... In the morning there's a smaller group and then when Jesus chose his disciples, he chose 12 out of all of those people. But he did the choosing. Do you understand? He did it sovereignly. He didn't take a poll. He didn't ask for a show of hands who would like to come with me. He didn't ask for them to walk down the aisle. He chose who the 12 would be. He still works that way today. One writer said, The call goes forth and is at once followed by the response of obedience. The response of the disciples is an act of obedience. Because Jesus is the Christ, he has the authority to call and to demand, to demand obedience to his word. Jesus summons men to follow him not as a teacher or a pattern of a good life, but as the Christ, the Son of God. One writer said many of us like the disciples knew a time in our life that was before Christ when we had little ideas where where Jesus would lead us or what he would require of us during the time and here's a question for you and for me during the time you have followed Christ have you changed are you a different person am I a different person from when we trusted Christ I trusted Christ a very many years ago now. And I surely am a different person than I was. During the time you followed Christ, how have you changed? How are you changing still? Not only in your beliefs, but also in your behaviors, your priorities, your values, your career goals. Your circle of friends, and the things that define you as a person. Have you and I responded to his sovereign call? First to salvation and then to discipleship. Another writer said, His choice preceded out of his infinite wisdom and understanding. When he called them, it was not because they had asked to be called. And when he called them, there was no room for protests of ability. He assumed responsibility. You know, he didn't call the 12 and then say, now who of you feel inadequate? Because I would hope all 12 would have raised their hands, even the one who betrayed him. I would hope we would raise our hands and say, I feel inadequate. But you see, inadequacy or my feeling of inadequacy isn't a reason not to follow Him. Because He takes responsibility. He takes responsibility for you. He takes responsibility for me. He calls us. And then He takes responsibility for us. And our feelings of inadequacy Are not even an issue. When he chose those men, the writer said, he did indeed choose men utterly inadequate to the doing of his work, knowing that he himself could empower them to do it. But it is also true that he chose men in whom there were capacities which he would sanctify and employ. God has given every one of his capacities. And oh my goodness, folks, what he can do with us if we're willing. What he can do with us if we are willing. Well, I've got to decide what I'm not going to cover here. But one thing I do want to cover is this. I, I love what Jay Vernon Uh, not J. Vernon McGee, it was G. Campbell Morgan, excuse me, what he said, and and it was was great. He raised this question, and it's a question that I began with this morning, so let me kind of bring things full circle. He said this, this is a very, Jesus calling these disciples, and then we have the names of the disciples here in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Uh, and we find out that in a number of cases, Jesus added on a name or gave them a nickname or changed their name. Like Simon, was his name was changed to what? Peter. Peter, you are Peter. Uh, the James and John, Jesus gave them the nickname, the sons of Thunder. Thunder. Well, It's the thought of some that those, the ones that we have record of are not the only ones He gave nicknames to. And I like that. I like that. Well, listen to what G. Campbell Morgan said. This is a very suggestive story. To three of His twelve disciples He gave surnames. Perhaps He did the same for all. We do not know. The action is regarded... Uh, The action in regard to these three is illustrative. Perhaps he ever does the same thing for his own. If so, one wonders how he is surnaming us. The idea is purely speculative, but it is speculation on a profitable level, especially in light of these revelations. Simon, he surnamed Rock. Oh, the Rock. How do you like that? A first century Rock. Uh, first century Dwayne uh, Johnson. Uh, Simon he surnamed Rock. This Simon was impulsive, restless, inconsistent, lacking cohesion, yet he surnamed him Rock. The name was an indication. Listen to this, folks. This is so good. The name was an indication of his unrealized natural capacities and of the Lord's ability to realize them. Jesus saw in him what he could be. Jesus saw in him what he really was. When he looks at you and he looks at me, what does he see? He sees what we could really be. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, he surnamed Sons of Thunder. They were men of gentle filial "...nature, quiet men, content to abide at home in the service of their father, yet he surnamed them sons of thunder, men of authority and power. The principle was the same. In James was the capacity to be loyal to a master and to cause us to die for them. In John was the mystic power which would make him a seer and an interpreter the great things of life." The Lord was able to bring these things to realization and to employ them for His own glory in cooperation with His service. And He's able to do that today to you and to me, for you and for me. And I'll close with these words of G. Campbell Morgan. And so again we wonder, what is He naming us? The consideration is for the hour of lonely communion with Him, in such an hour we shall discover that His surnaming is ever based upon two things. First, our capacities as the result of our first birth. And second, His power to realize those capacities. We shall find moreover that His power becomes operative when we are wholly yielded to Him. What's your nickname? Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us each, each one of us who's here this morning. Give us a vision for what we could be wholly yielded to you. Give us a sense of what our nickname, what you are just wanting to nickname us. And Father, help us to realize that our culture is in desperate need. They're in need of what we have. Help us not, be, not to be reluctant to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.